Kensington. Hello. Welcome to Kensington Church. My name is Kristen and I am so glad you are here and still shuffling in. Getting here. It's funny. The last service is always a service that people are the latest to. And it's like, it's the last service. Like you have the most time in the morning to get ready for it, but it is what it is. I, we were that family that always came in late, sat in the back row. It was great. So welcome. We're glad you're here. So, Hey, new year's resolutions. I'm just saying that this is the year to make them right. I went online to find out what the most common new year's resolutions are that people make and what do you think they are lose weight exercise one more save money save money who does that hope that's not mine but our family decided this year to lose weight and exercise a little bit more. We've been doing it for all of six days and it has been truly miserable in case you're wondering. Lots of laughter, lots of fights and already tears. We've gotten on the scale way too many times. It's been great. But I do want to say, isn't it interesting as we go into the new year that we start to make some changes to better our lives. We consider the stuff on the outside, right? Physical exercise, which is good and health, but we don't always consider our spiritual or our emotional well-being. And we think we can handle the year if we're just more fit. <laughs> I mean, it's actually kind of funny to me to think of that because really we need to be, we need to be healthy, not only on the outside, but on the inside. Our leadership gathering that is our, our, program, our events that we do twice a year now at Kensington is kicking off in, next weekend. And the entire topic about it, uh, for the gathering is called Thrive. And we're focusing on emotional and spiritual well-being. So you hear the word leadership and you think, I'm not a leader. I'm not going to that thing. That Like that's for the people that lead here at the church. And I'm going to tell you this. Leadership is defined as influence over one human being. So if you have influence over anyone in your life, I don't care what your age is, this event, this gathering is for you next weekend. And it is. We're bringing in speakers from all over the country to speak on emotional and spiritual well-being. There'll be great workshops and there'll be just great, great arts and food. And it's just a fun event. All of our staff will be there. So make time in your schedule. Go online and register um, to, for the leadership gathering coming up next weekend. Okay, Kaleo kids, who knows anyone between the ages of kindergarten and fifth grade? If you have anyone in your family or in your neighborhood that are in that age group, Kaleo kids is for them. It's an incredible program. For, it, talks, it, it teaches the kids drama, acting, acting skills, singing skills, and dancing skills. We have our own Josh and Abby Jackson who lead worship for us up here all the time. They're going to be a part of that. It's going to be an awesome program. So if you are interested, this is the deal. I know a lot of you guys, we've been talking about this for several weeks. And you've been talking about being interested. It starts in two weeks. You have to register your kids. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you that. Get out there. There's a table in the lobby. It has a sign called Mismatch. That's the name of the, of the, of the play that they're doing this year, the musical that they're working on. So go out there and get your kids signed up and talk to the people at the table and get more information. So, hey, I want to bring up a friend of mine, a bunch of friends of mine. Come on up, you guys. Pam Four is on staff with us now, and I want to introduce her and some people. She's bringing up some friends. How Got good is that? some friends. I know. It's awesome. 
So, Pam, you and I have known each other for 25 years. Mm-hmm. When we were two, we met. Right. right? We met when we right. were about two years old. We're 27 years old now, right? Yeah. And um, we met in a small group. The first time I met you, you and Jeff were leading a small group, and Paul and I walked in, and we and didn't you scared talk to me. You. <laughs> scared she you. She was six feet tall. I still am. I was pregnant. And like, yeah. She came from the marketplace yeah, with lipstick she on. And, still yeah. looks like Michelle Pfeiffer. It's yeah. awful. Anyway, yes, we've been friends for years and years, but small groups were where we met, and you have a new role. Pam yeah. is the newest member of our Shelby staff, and tell everybody about what you do now. Well, the role is discipleship director, but really what it means is I get to help you get connected. So if you are coming to church and get to come on a Sunday and sit in the, in, out here, there's really another piece to church and feeling connected, and it's through groups. So I'm actually carrying all of these things, because when you leave today, you actually will see some people out by the info tables carrying some signs, and they're people who are running groups. The other thing, because the service is really great today, so if you have this little card when you walked in on the back, you'll see three different types of way to kind of jump in and get connected here um, at Kensington. Um, one of these is courses, and so smiling faces over here. Let me point out some smiling faces you may want to know. So this is Frank, and if you are coming into the new year and said, um, I kind of need to work on my budget, you will want to get to know Frank, because he is leading FPU, is what we call Financial Peace University, so look for Frank. He'll tell you all the details. It's actually starting next Sunday here at church. Little plug. Um, and then another course, when you look in here, there's one called Alpha. This is Maria. Maria has led Alpha for a long time. It's fun. There's dinner there, and it's where you go if you have questions and you're I have really hard questions and you want to feel safe. I don't even believe God. I don't know if you really did what you guys are talking about on Sunday. Maria is a great place and it's a safe place to go. Now, we also have community places to plug in. So if you're looking at your card on the top, we have men's groups representing the men's group here. Um, look for someone Johnny's. carrying that sign. Um, and we also have some women's group. It's called Encounter. So if you just Woo-hoo. want to come to a women's group, um, you can look for some these smiling faces. There are also groups... Am I talking too fast? No, yeah, okay. you are, but that's okay. All right. Going. You're awesome. Can you tell me excited? <laughs> Pam and I have been friends forever, and I'm the one that's supposed to be the talker. Like, she's always the quieter of the two of us, so this is, like, so fun to watch Our her time's with down. all her stuff. Okay. <laughs> Um, you will also, if you would just like to build a friendship, which you've seen that budded many, many years ago, it starts with just showing up on someone's doorstep, for real. And so when you go out into the lobby, there are people who are ho- having um, mixed groups at their homes. Maybe some are just men, some are women's. You can just show up, check them out. Tell, you can even say you're scary, like I said, you're scary. But look in the lobby for a place to get, build community. Good job, Pam Four. No, this is true. So here's the deal. We believe that church is a great place to come, but life change happens in small groups, in mid-sized groups, and even in courses because you get connected. So I love Josh Eisenhardt. He's a gifted, amazing speaker, man of God. But I'm just telling you where you're really going to grow in your faith, where the practical how-to is going to happen is going to be in joining one of these things. And here's the thing, right? They're not weird looking, are they? Like how many times have you been like, go to a small group. I'm like, I'm not going into somebody's weird home and some weird thing's going to happen. You guys look pretty normal. Like, really? It's awesome. All right, you guys, thanks for coming up here. So we're going to get started with our service. It's a great service today. I'm going to ask you to stand up and crunch into the middle, say hello to a neighbor, and uh, leave the outside seats for people coming in late. Thank you. Nothing's
stopping us We will go until we drop Until our hands no longer reach There's a longing in our hearts To capture something far beyond We see a glimpse of what we're after Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Look at you getting up all early in the morning. It's five degrees outside and trekking into church. Some of you, you couldn't have been you know, beaten away with a stick, and some of you, you can't imagine how you got here. But regardless, we are glad you're here. We're glad you decided to be here with us. We've got a very exciting service for you. And as we begin our service, before we dive into our subject matter for the day, I want to acknowledge the weekend and celebrate it just a little bit. Uh, for those of you that don't have school-aged children or work for a government institution, you may not be aware that this weekend is a special weekend. It is Martin Luther King Day uh, holiday this Monday. And this is the celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights leader. I don't even really have to describe who he is because he's such an iconic person within society. And oftentimes when we have these days like Labor Day or even sometimes Veterans Day or Memorial Day, we look at him and we go, hey, three-day weekend, woohoo!" And we can lose track of the fact that we take these days and set them aside because the contributions of these people are important and shouldn't be overlooked. And to kind of celebrate the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I want to read a, a portion or an excerpt from a letter that he wrote while being incarcerated in a Birmingham prison in 1963. It's a letter that he wrote to clergymen, people just like me, who had come together and united against his, uh, his you know, fight for civil rights. And their well-meaningness and their desire for harmony were overlooking a gross injustice. And I think the words he says and pens more than 50 years ago are just as poignant and just as relevant today. It says this, My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement, calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try and answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I am here in Birmingham since you have been influenced by the view which argues against outsiders coming in. I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the irrelatedness, or interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I hope this letter finds you, with strong in, finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationalist or civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman 
and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial injustice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation. Let's pause together. Let's give thanks to God that he has taken this fight on and strong men like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and incredible men and women throughout the generations have been fighting this fight for justice, equality, reconciliation, and unity. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you give us such great leaders, such great orators. God, that we may be brought to a clear light of our own inadequacies and missed opportunities. God, that we would choose, as John 17 says, to live in unity through the bonds of peace, to live together, united under the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing those of every race and gender and nationality as our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we may be together under the umbrella of Jesus. We're thankful for those who sacrificed and came before us that we might experience and enjoy that which was given at such a high price. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Well, today we are in the second part of a four-part series we're doing throughout the month of January called Crave. The idea of Crave and what we're talking about with this particular thing is that feeling we get inside for a thing or a person or an experience. That is that, that, that overwhelming sense of need that causes us to be willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Sometimes we experience that and it's something that seems relatively harmless, like a craving for a Krispy Kreme donut right off the line. Whew. Or a craving, sometimes you get for a Diet Coke. You go, you know what, it's only one every other day. You go, it's not that big a deal. Man, when I have a craving, it's overpowering. Or that craving we get for turkey or pumpkin pie or whatever that is. But when cravings turn into addictions... When they turn into things we are incapable of saying no to, they have the ability to sidetrack our lives and destroy us from the inside out. Last week we talked about the need so many of us have, myself included, for approval, for people to give us that nod that says, I am with you and I am excited that you believe in me. And many of us will do all sorts of destructive things to get there. Today we're talking about substance abuse. Today we're talking about those of us, and I say us, because this room is big enough and full enough that it affects us, that can't say no to the bottle. Whether that's a bottle of alcohol, a bottle of pills, whether that's something you inject, something you snort, something you ingest, that you just can't say no to. So we wanted to jump into this right off the bat with a song. You've heard the song on the radio a dozen times. My guess is you probably never really heard the lyrics. It's by an artist by the name of Pink. And the song is called Sober. And it's, it's a song that in its original form is a very upbeat, very rock-esque song. And we've decided intentionally to turn it into a ballad today. Because we want to take the focus off of the melody and put it onto the words. So my hope is as we look at this song, as we allow it to be a part of who we're, where we're going to go today, allow it to maybe start stirring things in your heart. Because we're going to some difficult places today. Might as well start right away.
You know, that chorus of that song is so haunting to me. It says, no pain inside, you're my protector. That almost sounds like worship, doesn't it? It's followed by that line that says, but how do I feel this good? Sober. Because that's the truth about substances, isn't it? It takes us from that moment of pain and vulnerability. And in just a few short moments, we reach that height of invulnerability. And it's addictive. <laughs> Millions of people struggle with substance abuse. As I said before, in a room this size, there's no question that there are those who struggle with it. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's opioids, which is an epidemic in our area specifically, as well as around the country and world. Whether it's prescriptions, whether it's heroin, whether it's methamphetamines, whether it's you name it. As humans, we have this seeming insatiable desire to alter our consciousness. And in doing so, we reap tremendous damage to our lives. Interestingly enough, I have a very interesting relationship with alcohol. See, when I started in my life as a young child, I grew up in an incredibly stable and amazing home. My mom and dad, they, they waited a little while to have kids. My brother was born, and he was you know, two and a half years older than me. He was born when my mom turned 30. And so uh, like, they, they waited a little while. And because of that, they dealt with a lot of their junk before they ever had kids. And so by the time we came around, we had this wonderful, loving, stable home to grow up in. And alcohol was always present. But when I thought about alcohol and when I thought about what it was, this is kind of what I pictured. I pictured toasts, I pictured parties, I pictured champagne, I pictured laughter, I pictured joy, I pictured celebration and weddings, I pictured parties at college, the kids maybe had a little too much to drink. But it was always an enhancement to an already good time. See, neither of my parents struggled with substance abuse, they didn't struggle with addiction. There was alcohol in our home, but it was always used in moderation. My parents were partiers, and I don't mean like partiers. I mean like they threw parties all the time. They had people at our house. I always felt like we didn't even have a front door because people would just walk in uninvited and be like, hey, got some coffee, let's, let's talk. But whenever there would be parties, there would be alcohol. And I always thought as a kid, man, I loved alcohol. Not to drink it myself, um, but I loved that like about an hour and a half into any party, all the adults got really fun. You know, it's like all of a sudden the guy that was completely ignoring you before is like, hey, come over here. Let's have a joke. I got a joke for you. Hey, pull my finger. And you're like, eh. you know, it was just great because everyone was just happier. They were a little more joy filled. And the way I saw alcohol growing up was like this. And it's very true. These are all true facts about alcohol and most substances, to be honest with you. They one, they ease anxiety. You ever experienced that? I'm not asking you if you drink because right now you're like, I don't even know if I'm allowed to. I'm just going to say the Bible says, you know, first off you are, um, but it eases anxiety, doesn't it? How many of us have had a drink at a social gathering or a place where we felt intimidated or uncomfortable, specifically around the holidays? And it just greases the skids, man. It just kind of releases some of that anxiety. It relaxes you in that situation. And it often lowers those inhibitions that we have to get out and dance or to laugh out loud. And that is a fun experience. And we look at what Jesus, you know, had to say about it. And the very first miracle he ever did was turn water into wine at a wedding. If he was ever going to make a political statement about it, that would have been a good time. He'd be like, no, I'm going to turn this into guilt and shame instead. You know, no, he's like, party on! Because people use it in that way. And in that way, it doesn't really seem to cause a lot of harm. And that was my childhood growing up. I watched as my father would drink, but not drink too much. And not drink every day. I never saw him drunk. 
Never saw my mom drunk. It wasn't until I got into adolescence that I saw a different side of substances. In adolescence, I began going to school. And in school, you're running into families that have very different backgrounds than yours. I remember when alcohol took on a different picture. I remember the first time a friend of mine got blackout drunk at a party, fell off of a deck, and spent a week in the hospital because he almost died from alcohol poisoning at 15 years old. I remember kids that were hospitalized and even friends that I lost along the way as opioids and heroin took them. I personally watch members of my extended family on both sides struggle with this and have people very close to me, both friends and family that are losing this battle even as we speak. So this one's personal to me. This one matters to me because I've watched as it has torn families apart. I've watched as teenagers have drifted away because their mom and dad are creating a crazy town at home. I've watched as they have followed in their parents' footsteps, swearing they would never touch it, and then in college becoming alcoholics or drug addicts and experiencing the pain and hurt and devastation that comes from that. Because see, the truth is, substances are also very effective at numbing pain, both physical and emotional. Many of us don't realize this, but the way our brains are wired, psychological pain, emotional pain, and physical pain trigger the same things in our brain. And one of the things many people don't understand is specifically opioids. Those things affect both types of pain. That's why when you get appendicitis or you have back pain or you have some major trauma surgery, they give you morphine or they give you an opioid. It's basically heroin. It's all the same stuff because it's really good at taking away pain. Well, what people don't realize is that it also takes away emotional pain. And when you're in an influential time in your life and you're experiencing incredible emotional trauma or you've experienced torture as a child or neglect or abuse or childhood hurts and you're introduced to a substance in your developmental stages of life that not only takes away the physical but removes the emotional agony that is life, why wouldn't you take it? It's because you don't see the unintended consequences that come after. It provides that escape from reality and it lowers those inhibitions that prevent all kinds of abuse and reckless choices. And what started out as something we did for pleasure or maybe just to kind of medicate away some of the edges of life becomes something around which our entire life revolves. You've maybe heard this before, but addicts don't have relationships. They take hostages. Because their life revolves around this substance and their capability to continue using it. And to understand that and to see that and to get that matters for us. Because if you're someone who does not struggle with addiction, it is impossible to really fully understand what an addict goes through. To watch as this person deals with this thing they know is destroying their life and yet have no capability to overcome it on their own and feel utterly powerless to do anything meaningful to change their circumstances. And it comes from this truth that the substances have power to make the painful tolerable and the humdrum worth living for. And people who live these humdrum, boring lives in their own mind or that have insatiable pain in their lives, these substances make life worth living again. It takes people from that position of vulnerability and sadness to joy, to feeling invulnerable, feeling a thousand feet tall in just a couple swigs or a few pills. Or just a little in my lungs. 
that, that brings me back to normal. And that's where this stuff stems from. It's where it comes from. Gabor Mate, I'm going to be quoting him throughout the day today. His book, In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts, completely transformed my view on addiction. It made me less judgmental and more compassionate and helped me understand. He was a man who spent over a decade of his life living on the east side of Vancouver, where there is an intentional enclave of drug addicts that the city concentrates in one area. And he was their physician, not trying to fix them, not trying to repair things, but just being there to serve them. And these are his thoughts and what he's seen about addiction. He's an expert in the field. And what he says is that a hurt is at the center of all addictive behavior. The wound may not be as deep or the ache not as excruciating, but it's there. You see, what we don't understand, what we don't realize is oftentimes that thing that we enjoyed at a party, that thing that took away our back pain, that thing that gave us the capability to act normal becomes that thing which we need to be normal. It takes over our conscious thoughts and it becomes something that becomes muscle memory for us. It affects our psychology, our physiology, our emotions, and our physical bodies. It changes the way that we see the world and the way we interact with people. And the truth is, how we handle our cravings will determine the direction and the quality of our lives. And this one, I think, is much or more than any other. Because it sneaks up, dressed as innocent as a dove, but it's as poisonous as a viper. And until we figure out how to handle this in a way that is constructive, in a way that allows us to overcome it, we will continually watch as our society struggles to maintain its fiber. As we watch family after family fall apart because daddy can't stop hitting the bottle. Or because mommy's little helper got out of control. We watch as teens take their own lives because they think that's easier than dealing with the shame and guilt and condemnation that comes with their substance abuse and use. We watch as people who started out getting medicine from a doctor quickly moving to a street drug because they feel they have no other choice. This is happening right now. If you're in this room right now, I could do a show of hands and say, how many of you either have someone in your immediate family, you or someone else, that struggles with a substance abuse or addiction problem, or someone in your direct sphere of influence, like your family members, extended, or your friends. Everybody in this room raise their hand. Because this is something that affects everybody. We've all seen this. We've all experienced this. And we've understood the ramifications that come from it. And until we figure out how to overcome it, societally, as a group of people, we will be less than what God has called us to be. So before we explore the scripture, will you join me in a word of prayer? God, I pray that you would take these next several moments and you would rip apart our misconceptions. God, that maybe you would reprogram our hearts and minds. And for those of us in this room who are struggling with an addiction to a substance, God, I pray that today would be the day we look back on years from now as the catalyst when things finally changed and turned around. God, we know that as long as there's breath in our lungs, there's hope for our hearts. I pray you'd help us find it today. It's in your name. Amen. So I want to start in a probably unconventional place with this. It's what the Bible says about alcohol. Now, I'm going to typically talk about alcohol with the scripture primarily because other things didn't really exist back then um, that they knew about anyway. They existed in other parts of the world, but they knew alcohol. 
And so you can really kind of take this idea and you can apply it to other substances and mind-altering medications and drugs. And it's this. Substances, by nature, are not bad. I know, it's really easy to demonize them and see them all as like, ah, they're horrible, they're bad. But the Bible just doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, the Bible says this. This is the ones that most people you know, at AA or other places probably don't want you to, to hear. But it says this in 1 Timothy 5.23. Stop drinking only water. And use a little wine. Because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. That sounds great. Stop just drinking water. Have some wine. For goodness sake, it's in the Bible. Oh, good. <laughs> Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. You know what he said about it? Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with joyful heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Clink. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Looks like we're fine. The reason that he says that is because at the end of the day, alcohol is morally neutral. As is heroin and morphine, and cocaine, and all these other substances as our handguns, to be completely honest. It's what we choose to do with them. It's how we choose to leverage them. Can you imagine what modern medicine would be like without painkillers? Ugh, it'd be awful. It'd be like way back in the day when they're going to cut off your leg and they're like, here's some whiskey and a stick. You're like, oh, that's great. Thank you for that. Can't wait for this moment. Now it's like, no, we have all these wonderful, miraculous drugs that take away pain. They're not bad things in and of themselves. And even partaking in many of them, outside of the ones that are against the law, because you know we're supposed to obey the law, within moderation and for the majority of humankind, doesn't lead anywhere. It's just enjoyable. However, this is the other piece that we really need to know, and it's this, that substances by nature are a slippery slope. Substances by their very nature are a slippery slope. Because what they do is they alter our consciousness. They fire on the same things that are the reward centers of our brain that we get when we accomplish something, when we move forward. And from any perspective, whether you're an evolutionist or you're a creationist, we understand that our brain chemistry matters. And what we don't understand is when those things fire off those chemicals in our brain, it becomes an addictive thing for a, sp a specific percentage of the population. Not everybody, believe it or not, but a specific percentage, about 20% for which they are predisposed for this. And it becomes a very slippery slope. This is what the Bible says on that side of it. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. It goes on to say this in 1 Peter 4, 3, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. Those are the people that don't believe in Jesus. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. It's quite a list for drunkenness to fall into. But he's very clear about that. He says, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. I have an aunt who's over 30 years sober and very involved in AA. And she will still tell you that in the presence of the right beer, her mouth salivates. 30 years later. It's right there. Don't gaze at that wine when it's red and when it sparkles, when it goes down smooth. As I say that, I know there's people in this room who feel it. I want you to know, just as we're standing here, that's not me casting a judgment on you. That's not me trying to assert guilt or shame or blame to you. As a matter of fact, I think society would be a lot better if we started treating 
addiction as a medical disease instead of an issue of morality. Because that is exactly what it is. It's a disease of the brain, of the soul, of the heart. And until we start treating it that way, we're never going to recover from it. I want to share with you a video right now of a man that I respect. I'm trying to think of the best way to put him. There's nobody I respect more than this person and few people I'll respect as much. His name's Jack Wilson. Jack Wilson is a licensed cognitive therapist, doctor. He spent years and years and years in, 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 in a practice of counseling, life coaching. He was a consultant to the U.S. military. He spent years as a professor at OU. He's been my personal confidant therapist and probably the only reason I'm still on the rails. He is an expert in this field. And what I love is for you to hear what he has to say about those who are predisposed to this condition and what they might want to do to figure that out. While we do that, we're also going to receive our offering. For those of you maybe that are newer to Kensington, this is your first time here, I just thank you so much for being here. The reason we do this part of our service is because we believe that when we combine and align our resources, God does big things. Any one of us individually is only capable of what one person's life or resources is capable of doing. But when we combine and we align, that's when we begin to redefine what's going on in the world. And we love doing that. We are passionate about that here. We love seeing things change in Haiti. We love seeing things change in Brazil. We love seeing things change in Detroit and in Pontiac and in Macomb. And we see God marching forward and we want our resources to be a part of it. So as the pouches go through, thank you for giving. Thank you for giving generously, for being a part of this with us. And while you watch this video, I hope that you maybe would listen in it for yourself and for those you know that struggle with this incredibly difficult disease. Let's take what you just said and apply it to like alcohol. Sure. When is that a problem? Let's talk about predisposition first. Right. Okay. I think it's really, really important that people understand uh, that this isn't settled science. Okay. It's, but the trend line has been around for a very, very long time uh, and, and it influences my thinking to the level that I truly believe that a certain percentage of the population are physiologically predisposed uh, to developing addictions, whether it's an alcohol or marijuana or a controlled substance, uh, we're physiologically predisposed. And the best way to figure out whether you're physiologically predisposed is to look at your family history. You know, take a look at that family tree, you know, and see if there are people in your past uh, who um, have had problems with drinking or, or whatever, because that used to be the term that was used. Uh, and if there is, then for you, drinking is something that you really should not be cavalier about. It's something you should really be paying some attention to, because if you have a physiological predisposition, then you're going to move through uh, recreational, moderate drinking uh, to irresponsible drinking and addiction much more quickly than someone who doesn't have a physiological predisposition. Now, obviously, somebody like me, you know, I look mm -hmm. at my family tree, right. and I have two alcoholic parents. Mm -hmm. For decades, I never even thought about it. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I can drink a beer, right. I can drink whatever, it's right. no big deal. You would have immediately said to me, dude, be very, very careful with this. Exactly. Everybody should be careful, but especially somebody with a background yeah. like mine. Absolutely. So what do I do? 
Uh, well, in your situation, uh, I would have I would have said to you that you need to be aware of the fact that becoming intoxicated is just not safe for you. Mm -hmm. If you were to drink even moderately, uh, then I would say there's a better than a 60% chance that you would have triggered mm -hmm. uh, your physiological predisposition, and we'd be talking about some kind of a recovery issue. And I've heard you say in the past the analogy of uh, playing Russian roulette with predisposition. Talk about that. Yeah, when we have a predisposition, um, the higher that predisposition is, when we look at our family history, you know, both your parents have a substance abuse issue, then the likelihood that four out of, if there are five kids in the family, like my family, uh, the probability is that four out of those five kids are physiologically predisposed. Uh, and then if the grandparents have a you know, have an issue, and the aunts and the uncles, so the more people you have in your family tree, uh, or the more uh, more culturally relevant it is for you, uh, and you're playing Russian roulette and you're spinning the cylinder. Okay, if you don't have a physiological predisposition, yeah, you can probably develop alcoholism. It's not likely, but it's probably good. But let's say you have one bullet in the cylinder. But if all of those factors that I just described to you are there, then you've got five bullets um, in there and there's only six spots. Yeah. You know, so the higher the issue is there in terms of, of number of people, then oh, we get, better be careful with this Russian roulette thing. What would you say to the person sitting out here that says, I don't really have a problem with drinking? Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they really honestly don't think they have a problem. How does a person know? Well, the, one of the biggest issues in terms of the way you know is the feedback that you're getting from the people around you. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have people saying to you, uh, I think you should um, cut back on your drinking, well, pay attention to them, see what they're saying. Uh, if you're in a circumstance or a situation where family members, colleagues, whatever, have said to you something about your drinking and you get angry about it. Well, pay attention to what, to what, they're, what they're saying. You know? uh, if there's a circumstance or situation in which you feel guilty about your drinking, well, pay attention to that. Uh, and, uh, and if you're in a circumstance or a situation where at any point in time you've ever uh, had a hangover and you wake up the next morning and, you've, and you convince yourself that you need an eye opener to get the day going, mm -hmm. what I just did was what's called the CAGE, C-A-G-E, uh, and it's taught to physicians and, and therapists uh, to get an introductory idea in terms of if you say yes to two of those four questions, then we need to have a chat about whether you're drinking irresponsibly or perhaps you're in a circumstance or situation where you've already what we call tipped over mm -hmm. into addiction. Now walk through the cage again. I'd love to hear the C-A-J-G-E okay. explained. Okay. Have you ever tried to cut back? So that's the C. That's the C. Have you ever been angry you know, uh, when someone questioned your drinking? Mm -hmm. Have you ever felt guilty, that's the G, about your drinking, and have you ever had an eye, what's called an eye opener, you know, a, a drink early in the day um, to, to help you to have fewer um, anxiety issues or, or fewer symptoms of, of hangover. So that's the cage. Talk about, I remember a decade ago or so when we talked about alcohol, you talked about the 30-day sort of test. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Yeah, this is something that's kind of idiosyncratic to me uh, in that when someone says to me, well, how do I know if I have a drinking problem? My response is don't drink for 30 days and come back and talk to me. Mm -hmm. well, let's talk about how it goes. 
And I found over the years that um, I've done that, you know, I don't know how many people. And um, it really is a very good predictor or indicator of what role alcohol uh, is, is playing in their life if they just try to go, okay, 30 days, not going to drink. And for most folks that I've talked to, ah, it's easy, it'll be a piece of cake, don't worry about it, you know, kind of thing. And occasionally it is. But if they asked me that question, see, it fits right in the cage thing. Mm-hmm. They asked me that question, that's telling me, well, this is worth taking another look at this. You know, so try it for 30 days and then let's talk. So many incredible nuggets of wisdom in there. But that predisposition he's talking about, as he said, the science isn't settled on this. They haven't found the exact DNA or genes that are triggered or not triggered. But through anecdotal evidence, through incredible amounts of data, it's been seen that there are those specifically with family origins. The jury's out whether or not it's a DNA thing or it's a nurture thing, if it's something that they are exposed to and therefore more likely to do. But regardless, we can all agree there are those that just seem more susceptible. Whether that's because mom and dad pass down genes that make it so, or there is a hurt, or a trauma, or a torture, or a disappointment, or a neglect, or an abandonment issue that triggers a pain so deep and so profound that you can go through anything to get rid of it, even just for a moment. You see, that's what happens in people's lives. People start out one way, and they end up another If you wonder if that's you, if the question you're asking today is, am I addicted? If you're asking that question, my guess is the answer is yes. Just being honest. Maybe not to the degree that it could be, but possibly more than it should be. Best way to tell, he said it, it nailed it right on the head. Just take the 30-day challenge. If this is not an issue for you, just stop doing it for 30 days. You might find out that it actually is an issue for you. But what's it going to cost you to try? Just take 30 days? Say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. And see if you can. And I say that because at that stage, at the stage you're at right now, my guess is you're probably experiencing very little in the way of negative consequences. Sure, maybe you woke up with a headache, or maybe you had to have a little bit extra in the morning, a wake up, you know, a nightcap, and, you know, a wake me up or an eye opener. And, you know, maybe this thing has slowly began to creep. But here's the issue that I run into, and the one that I want to warn you against. It is at that stage that it is easiest to overlook, but also easiest to step into recovery. Because you haven't lost anything yet. You haven't had that moment of profound disappointment that your children look you in the eye when you missed something important. You haven't had that deep-seated regret of messing something up that you can't go back and fix. You haven't had that trauma that re-perpetuates the cycle of realizing you missed a moment that will never come again and that you can't make up for lost time. But it's the perfect time to deal with it before you get there. Because you see, what ends up happening to addicts is what Gabor says in his book, once again, quoting him. He says, addicts jeopardize their lives for the sake of making the moment livable. Nothing sways them from the habit, not illness, not sacrifice of love and relationships, not the love of all earthly goods, not the crushing of their dignity, not the fear of dying. The drive is that relentless. And you may be saying to yourself, whoa, hey, easy there, pal. You know, I may enjoy the drink a little more than the next guy, but that sounds pretty extreme. My guess is that the person for whom this is relevant and real would have said the same thing at some point on their journey. And I'm not saying that everybody that struggles a little bit gets to this place, but a surprising and alarming number of people do. 
Do you know what one of the biggest things happening in society right now is people going to doctors because of a back pain, because of a shoulder injury, because of a routine surgery and getting hooked on a medicine like Vicodin or Percocet or fentanyl. And what happens is, is their body realizes in that moment that not only are they receiving that physical relief, they're getting that emotional relief, and it triggers something deep inside, and they begin this pattern. And what happens is they get to a place where they're addicted to it, and their doctors realize it, and they go, hey, you can't keep doing this, we're cutting you off. But it doesn't work that way, you see, because you need the fix now. You need to be able to feel normal and be okay. You've recognized the positive effects, and you want them. And when you realize you can't have them, you go to the, the other places. And you say, hey, I know your grandmother was sick. Is she done with her, you know, her Vicodin? Because if so, I still got this back thing. And you move through that pattern until everyone starts looking at you and going, I'm going to lock up the medicine cabinet when you come. And then you start going to the street for it and paying for it. And you realize it's extremely expensive. But heroin is much less expensive and does the exact same chemical thing. And so you make that jump. And then all of a sudden someone gives you a hit that's just more powerful than you thought it would be. And you OD. And I know it sounds like, whoa, that's a, that has happened day after day after day in this community. And it's not to poor people. I shouldn't say it's not just to poor people. It's to rich people. It's to African American. It's to white people. It's to Asians. Latino. It does not respect persons or origins, or life standards. And it's happening every day. And you, right now, may very well be in the throes of it. And as I said before, I don't mean that in a condemning way. I mean that in an imploring way. I'm here for you. I'm fighting for you on behalf of you. Because I believe God has something in store for you to set you free from these things. And what we have to ask and what we have to figure out is how do we conquer this thing? If you're finding yourself finding a feeling of anxiety or discomfort at just the thought of waiting 30 days to find out if you're addicted, then perhaps now is the best time to go and join a group, to go and find a circle of people to help you, because there is an antidote to this. This disease, as every expert describes it, is incurable, progressive, and terminal. Addiction is incurable, Meaning there is no way to be a non-addict or an ex-addict. Once you're an addict, it is something that you struggle with for a lifetime. It's progressive, which means you may not be at the point where you're experiencing negative consequences yet. Check back with me in a year or two. And lastly, it's terminal. And the only path that alcoholism leads to is early death. I know that because I'm watching close family members to me drift away. <coughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of watching people's lives be destroyed by these substances and all the rest of us watching quietly with disapproving glares instead of hope, instead of reaching out a hand and saying, I'm here for you. I don't judge you. I love you. Let's beat this together. You know what? Science and faith actually line up on what the solution is to this problem. And it comes down to three things. The antidote for addiction is identity, purpose, and people. Identity, we must find our identity outside of the bottle, outside of the pain, outside of the hurt, outside of the predisposition. We must realize we are bigger and more than the drink. We are bigger and more than the pain. We are children of God. We are not addicts. We are children of God with an addiction. 
And we need to stop putting ourselves in a category where we're horrible people, where we're bad and we deserve shame and guilt and incarceration. And instead, we need to look at this as the mental health issue, as the medical issue that it is, and reach out with open arms and say, I don't condemn you. I want to help you. Let's do this together. And when we recognize that it is Christ and Christ alone that gives us that identity that we need, that's when we begin to figure this out. AA tells us the first step is realizing that I am powerless against my addiction and my life has become unmanageable. And the second one is realizing that I need to turn my life over to a higher power to regain sanity in my life. And when we do that, it is the recognition that I am bigger than my addiction. I am a child of God. And when we start to realize that, we begin to find purpose. And you see, purpose comes from recognizing God has something bigger for us than a bottle of vodka. He has something bigger for us than a bottle of Percocet. He has something bigger for us than the next injection of heroin. He has something more for us than this monkey that lives on our back. He has something that is outside of us that we are meant to contribute toward. And you'll find anybody in AA, anybody in Celebrate Recovery, their, their steps move them toward a place where they are giving back. Because to realize a higher purpose is to realize you are more and you were meant for more. And lastly is the people. One of the adages you hear in any recovery program is we are only as sick as our secrets. For so many of us, we live in the quiet shame and personal condemnation of what we are doing to our families. We've begun to see this, this negative situation. We began to see some of these things that are happening. And we realize that something needs to be done. But we can't imagine walking into a room filled with other people that are addicts because we still say, I'm nothing like those guys. Yes, you are. As a matter of fact, we all are to some extent. I'm telling you, we CCR, like, I'm just talking about Celebrate Recovery right now. This is a program that Kensington and many, many churches around the country and world do. It's very similar to AA and other support groups, but it's different in that we work toward identity. We work toward purpose, and we surround you with people. And when people walk into CR, it's usually after they have reached a point in their life where the negative consequences are more strong than their fear of new things. And they walk in, and they go, okay, this is going to be horrible. And they walk in, and they go... I, I'm, I'm an addict. And everyone goes, hi, me too. Come on in. Yes. Really? Yeah, yeah, come sit over here. We're going to talk about it. Like, openly? Yeah, sure, come on. He's been a heroin addict for like 10 years. Come on over. Like, oh, okay. What happens is that me too effect, that inclusion effect, those eyeballs to eyeball contact and communication where someone says you're not alone. I've been where you are, I'm a few steps ahead, and I've doubled back to grab your hand and help you find recovery. It happens on Monday nights at our Troy location, Tuesday nights at our Orion location. I'm just telling you something. It is one of the most important things Kensington does. As a matter of fact, after last week's talk, we saw, I think, a 50% increase in the number of people going to CR. We didn't even talk about substances because it's not just about substances. It's about body issues. It's about anorexia or bulimia. It's about eating disorders. It's about body image stuff like we're going to talk about next week. It's about substances. It's about pornography addiction. It's about being a family member of someone who's dealing with addiction. Codependence is a real thing and it needs help just like someone who's an addict. Because to be someone who enables addiction is not a fun experience. But I just cannot tell you enough. If you're struggling with this, stop struggling alone. And on top of that, go find a small group. 
Go find a group of people with whom you can be real, the 2 a.m. friends that you can call. We've got a bunch of people out in the lobby just today to help you find and acclimate and assimilate into a group. You need to go do that because this isn't a battle you can win by yourself. Thousands of people have tried before you and failed. You're not that special. You need the help. There are amazing people here to do it. I'm going to invite the band to join me on stage as we finish my portion and we move into a time of worship. I'm just going to tell you, I know there are people in here right now that are squirming in their seat. And right now you're seeing the band come out and you're going, oh, I could probably stand up and slip right on out. And you're just going to move. Now, I know there's also some of you that legitimately have to go and you're like, crap, now everyone's going to think I'm an addict. I'm great. <laughs> I'm just saying, your tendency, if you're uncomfortable in this moment, is going to be to try to avoid it. And I just want to encourage you not to do that. If at any other time in your life, now is a good time just to stay put and allow the words of these songs to touch your heart as you sing them with us or you allow them to be sung over you and around you. But I believe every single person in this room could benefit greatly from at least just asking the question, am I addicted? And if I am, when am I going to be willing to do something about it? Is it going to be when I embarrass myself at my children's wedding? Is it going to be when I lose something significant or someone significant? Is it going to be when I have such a deep-seated regret that I don't even tell that part of my life story anymore? Is it going to be once it's so late that you've experienced irreparable damage? Or is it going to be right here, right now, where you seek that moment of clarity and the Lord opens up to you and shows you you are not guilty, you are not condemned, you are not to be feeling shame, you are to be feeling that you are a child of God, that you have a greater purpose and there are people to help you. I so wish that so many people in my life had somebody that would step in, grab them by the hand and say, you're not alone. So I'm saying it to you now. You're not alone. You're not alone in this room. You're not alone in this church. You're not alone in this community. There's help. And where you feel shame or guilt or judgment, it can be replaced in a snap with hope, with healing, with purpose. But it involves turning your eyes to Jesus, realizing your life has become unmanageable and that now and today is the time for change to take root. Maybe it's for something that I'm struggling with, and I just need the enemy to know that he is defeated. And so this morning, I think this song is important because we have to tell the enemy that you are defeated by a God that loves us, by a God that sees us, and by a God that knows us. And just as Josh was saying, we have to focus on hope this morning. I really feel like that's what the word that God put on my heart this morning and even last night as I was praying through this morning. We have to know that there's hope. 
that Jesus died on the cross to take this addiction, to take this injustice that you might see in your family member's life, in your friend's life, or even in your life. He took it on the cross. He shed his blood for that, and it's covered, and we live in that victory. And I think that's so important. We have to focus on the fact that there's hope and that there's healing that comes from this. So the chorus says, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. And I love the fact that we can say the name of Jesus and darkness flees. We can say the name of Jesus and there's healing. We can say the name of Jesus and it's hope. And so I understand that for some of you that your weapon isn't singing. That's my weapon. But our weapon is truth. And this song speaks truth and worship speaks truth. So... Like Josh said, you can take this time to reflect. But if you catch on to the melody and you want to sing, please do. I would love that. Jesus loves that. The enemy hates it, so let's do it.
spirit of heaviness, put on the garment of praise. So that's what we're going to do right now. I actually, uh, we're going to sing this song and, and the words are just so simple. And it says, this is how I fight my battles. So right now, whatever your battle is, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's something else, maybe it's something at home or at work. This is how we fight it right here. Praising the one.
a child of God. Do you believe those words today? I'm telling you, if you believe those words, there's hope for you. There are people in this room right now. I know it. I know it. You've been putting this off. You've been denying it. You've been living in that beautiful cloud of denial. And today, God has hit you across the face like a two by four. What I hope you don't feel is I hope you don't feel condemnation, guilt, or shame. Because those are useless. I hope instead that you feel hope. That you see a path. You see a way out. And that you muster the courage through Christ in you to seek that help this week. Tomorrow is Celebrate Recovery in Troy. Tuesday is Celebrate Recovery in Orion. You will find like-minded people with whatever situation you're facing. This is what I want to leave you with. Before you take that next drink, before you pop that next pill, before you inhale or inject or do whatever it is that helps you forget, just ask yourself the question, are you aware of what hangs in the balance? Because my guess is you're not. None of us are. But I'm telling you, friends, I have seen grandfathers that have passed down this curse to their kids and watched as their children fell apart because of it to the third and fourth generation. And I have watched as courageous men and women have faced their demons head on and cut it off at the knees, not to pass it down to the next generation, not to let this pain continue. And it doesn't come out of condemnation. It doesn't come out of guilt or shame. It comes out of love and of the hope of Jesus Christ. So let's end this. Let's stop pretending that this is something that doesn't involve us. And let's get involved. Let's be proactive. Let's have those difficult conversations. And let's welcome people into our homes, into our lives, into recovery. Right outside, there is a group of people that would love to talk to you from Celebrate Recovery and from a number of groups of people filled with real people like you and me that want to cut the crap and deal with real life stuff. And if that's you today, make a beeline for a group. Make a beeline for Celebrate Recovery. But don't go home without something, a plan of action of how you're going to attack this thing. Next week, we're going to cover a whole nother set. You're not going to want to miss it. I don't know, bring a tissue because I know I'm a mess after this. But let's be a team. Let's be a community. And let's solve this problem so that the next generation doesn't inherit what we did. Thank you guys so much for being here. Can't wait to see you in the lobby. God bless you. Dismissed.